Hey, what's up, dude? What's going on, man? I am excited. I just got a text on my phone. It says my uh, my new MetaQuest Pro is in delivery, so it should be here in a couple hours, I think. I would love to also be excited. My MetaQuest Pro was supposed to show up today, but for whatever reason, my card got declined. Like the purchase got declined, and it also got declined right when I was landing in Arizona for a four-day bachelor party for my friend. Perfect. So not only do I not get my Quest Pro, but I also was like on vacation on this group trip. This was like last Thursday, right? Because I yeah, had the same Thursday. the same thing happened. Not the bachelor party, but I got a, a message from my bank that was like, "Hey, we got a sketchy charge from some company called Meta for fifteen hundred dollars. Like, we we just went ahead and declined that for you, but like." If it's a mistake, let us know. And I think what's going on is like no one is like, these credit card companies aren't used to people spending thousands of dollars on Facebook. Like the typical stories of someone spent thousands of dollars on Facebook, they got, they got scammed. They didn't right. buy a, a VR headset. That's like the place where people go to scam people. Exactly. Um, but I don't even know what's in this headset, man. Like I was looking, the reviews are out because everybody's getting theirs delivered today who ordered this thing. And like, I literally don't know what the features are. I don't know what makes it better than the previous headset that I already have. I just know that it's like a new gadget. It's a new toy. I like VR, and so I just bought it. So I, I do VR all the time. I do. Um, I have the MetaQuest 2, and I play a lot of ping pong. And I bought the Quest Pro. I mean, you suggested it. You're like, oh, hey, this is out. And I was like, whatever. And I just bought it. And I had no excitement about it, because I'm like, I, was, I thought it was only going to be ping pong. But then I realized there's one of these meeting room apps. It's not the one that we do, but it's one that like allows you to have multiple different screens. And I went into it with the Quest 2 and I thought it was really cool. But the problem is if you have like two or three screens, it's like the, like the computing power of the Quest 2 isn't that strong. So it's like really grainy. It's really like laggy. You can't really navigate the screens very much. So I assume that the Quest Pro really lets you engage with a bunch of different screens lets you do things yeah it's got a higher it's got a higher resolution but it's still not quite there yet so you've got like the resolution on the goggles which is like okay here's how high the resolution is when you're in vr but then if in the vr world you're trying to look at a computer screen in vr like that resolution can't be any higher than the resolution of your actual vr headset and so it's like Ultimately, like if you really want to like mimic having a bunch of different computer screens in VR, you need to have a VR headset that has crazy resolution so that it can have like slightly lower resolutions and VR on your screens there that actually looks good. Like that's I think probably five or ten years away before we even have screens that are that good. I think way more interesting than that is your table tennis in VR. Because every single week I look at you in our root group and you have like the highest strain. Basically you burn the most calories mm -hmm. every day. Because you're playing table tennis in VR. And the only thing I do in VR, really, besides the meeting rooms, is also exercise. I do like the Supernatural app, which is kind of like Beat Saber or DDR um, to a beat. It's like popular songs. But like your table tennis is insane. Like you play like, I don't know, how many hours of table tennis do you play in VR every day? Probably an hour on average, which is like some days it's 30 minutes, some days it's like, I just get addicted and it's like hour and a half, two hours. It's crazy that you can keep the headset on your head for that long. Like, I think I, I think do you get used to it. I'm it's out. like anything else. Like you just if you do it often, probably your brain like acclimates to it in some way. But I'll tell you what I'm actually way more interested in. And this is only because I listened to a podcast about this new Quest Pro a couple of days ago is apparently it's got AR. It's got augmented reality as well. And 
this podcast went so far as to suggest that like meta and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's long play is actually augmented reality. And VR is like a cool toy that people will enjoy for a while until the like, you know, ideally they just want like glasses, right? But the hardware isn't there yet. So for the time being, we have to have these big clunky, um, you know, VR headsets. But they I think have VR headsets are AR the future. future. I think VR is way cooler than AR because, I mean, like look at the Matrix, for example. Like the Matrix, the whole premise of that movie is it's virtual reality, right? It's like if you put something over your vision and it's good enough. Like we're not there yet. Maybe we're 50 years away or 30 years away. But if you put something over your vision and it's good enough, then you can create literally any experience imaginable. Like it, it obviates the real world. Like you don't need AR. Like AR can only ever do what the real world does plus a little bit, but VR can do all of that. Like you could literally create a VR app that demonstrates the real world and like simulates you having an AR goggle. Like literally VR could do anything. And so I can't imagine like the super long-term play being anything other than VR. And I don't know, like Mark Zuckerberg's like, I don't know what's going through that dude's head, but I would assume that that's like why he's betting the whole company on VR. And the AR is like a, a little bit earlier. Hey, what's up, Eric? Hey, what's up? Not much. VR versus AR debate. Uh-huh. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have a, do you own a VR headset? I don't own any of them. You know, I've checked them out at various times. I never quite felt like they were there yet, but I think that I agree with you though. Super long-term, I feel like VR is going to ultimately be the one that uh, kind of goes the distance. And yeah. AR is more of like a shorter-term stopgap. Yeah, it's, we'll a little, it's a little plus, little plug in the hole until we get to, to crazy VR. But I don't know. I'm a nerd. I think uh, most people don't. Most people think all of this stuff is uh, extremely unnerving and dystopian. And <laughs> I guess that's the benefit of being a nerd. We don't. <laughs> I, guess, I so. guess I should introduce you. You're Eric Turner. You're a software dev from the U.S. You've lived in Japan since 2013, and you tweeted in July, so just four or five months ago, that Japan Dev, your startup, is a hyper-niche bootstrap business. It has no employees, just my wife and me, and it's earned $60,590 so far this month. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Uh, you don't mind, like, do you share your revenue numbers? Like, is it, Has it changed since July? Yeah, sure. We can go through and uh, give an update on that, actually. So I tweeted that, I guess, back in August. Um, So that was about July's numbers, where I said in July we made about $62,000, I think was the ultimate uh, number that we arrived at. And then the next month, we actually did even better. So we hit about $83,000. in Wow. That would be September. Yeah. So that was actually the magic number so far. Every indie hacker knows so the number 83. I know. Because <laughs> 83,333 dollars so, times 12 is a million dollars a year. Exactly. But we actually did break that as well. So that was nice. obviously a big moment. Wow. The only reason that I didn't go on Twitter, though, and talk about that was that I knew that this trend was not actually going to hold. And the next <laughs> month in September, we actually hit like 40,000 only. That was right. going to be my um, question. How stable? Exactly. So that's the thing. What is it that makes the revenue fluctuate month to month with a, a job board? Well, it's that I do uh, billing a little bit differently than most indie job boards. So usually they will be on like a pay per job post model, right? You have a stripe button, you click it, 300 bucks or whatever per post, um, very straightforward. But the way that we do it is actually uh, that we don't charge the company until they make a successful hire through the platform. So it's free to join. Uh, free to actually post jobs and everything. There's no startup costs, uh, but then we do take like a kind of a bigger sum later 
in the event that they actually do hire someone. So that is why the revenue is so spiky. So I should probably describe exactly how your site works. Uh, you're kind of doing it right now. So you, you run Japan Dev. That's japan-dev.com. As we're talking about, it's basically a job board. And you describe it as a curated site for tech jobs in Japan for software developers and tech folks. And I think what's smart about it is that it's English friendly. So that's kind of like your niche, English speaking developers who want a job in Japan. So basically, if I'm living in the US or Canada or wherever, and I'm thinking, you know what? I want to move to Japan, check it out, but I don't speak the language. I don't know much about the culture. Uh, how am I even going to find a job over there? I probably Google something like, I'll Google it now, English speaking jobs in Japan. <laughs> and yeah, there you are. Boom, number six, japandev.com. <laughs> nice. uh, I click that and there you are. You know, I browse your site, I apply for a job. Before I even move there, I can find a job in my space in Japan. How does that describe, does that like accurately describe like the, the bulk of what you do at Japan Dev? Yes. That's perfect. You know, I couldn't have explained it better myself. I mean, we do cater, I guess, to people both in Japan and overseas. Um, so maybe that's the one thing I would add is that we do have some people already living here who want to get a better job as well. But yeah, I mean, it's mostly focused on the English speaking developer slash like kind of tech community. That's pretty much it, though. When you say we, you don't mean like a bunch of employees. You don't mean like a gigantic team. You mean you and your wife, right? Exactly. So it is a husband and wife project. Uh, we built it together. Now we are both, uh, you know, working full time on it. We quit our jobs. Uh, I was working as a software developer. She is actually a designer originally. So we had these mm. kind of complementary skill sets, which was really oh, cool. That's perfect. And yeah, so I write the code. She makes it look good. And that's what we're doing now. We're both kind of working full time on it. Well, Japan is like, I think, such a fascinating country. Mm. It's very ethnically homogenous. Which is it's pretty funny. Like in America, like we're all about diversity. Like I just watched the, this first season of the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, and it's funny because it's this fantasy world. But like you have like this extremely diverse cast of characters. Like you know, there's this family True. that's like you know owns the fleet, and they're like all black <laughs> and yeah. blonde hair. And then I watched the Rings of Power, which is the Lord of the Rings prequel series on Amazon. It's like the same thing. You know, you have black elves <laughs> and Asian elves and all this stuff. Uh, and we kind of uh. think of that as like the norm in America. Like even the tech industry is like. We should be super diverse and try to represent everybody. But then you go to Japan, and Japan is like 98.5% Japanese. Like, there is no diversity in Japan. It's extremely homogenous. You're a white guy from America. Like, where did you grow up, I guess? And what, what happened to you that made you decide, like, you want to go somewhere where you're going to stand out that much and be so different and not speak the language, presumably, and, and be so unique? Yeah. Wow. So you did some research, it sounds like. And yeah, I'm not sure that I knew that. 98.5% figure when I first decided to move here, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in the US. And I guess I just always loved, you know, to travel. And I, you know, I had parents that really kind of impressed that value of travel on us. And so we would, you know, we'd go on family trips and stuff growing up. And I always had this idea that I really wanted to truly experience another culture, rather than just kind of being born in one place in the US and living there my whole life. I just had that kind of idea in the back of my mind. So when I graduated from college, I knew that this was kind of my chance, you know, and I looked into moving abroad and I guess just really by chance, I had been studying Japanese, the language a bit, just because I was mm. kind of interested in it. And in high school, actually, I took Spanish my freshman year, absolutely hated it. And I kind of <laughs> swore off languages the next year. Yeah. Like I didn't take a language at all, you know, as a sophomore. And then my high school just added this Japanese program. For the first time and i was like all right check it out see it just seemed like so unique and so different from you know english and what i was used to so i was like yeah i'll try it and i kept taking the classes from high school then up through college and 
at that time, I was like, you know, Japan, if you're going to go just pick up your life and go live somewhere, it's actually a pretty good candidate. You know, it's safe. It's a you know developed country. So no real concerns there. It's got this unique kind of culture, uh, which was something that I really was interested in having grown up in the U.S., which is kind of this newish country, right? We don't have that like super long history. Um, so I just really wanted to do it for at least like a year or so, learn another language and experience a culture. And I just kind of ended up choosing Japan. And the way that I actually moved over was not as an engineer, uh, since I had no, I, I had studied computer engineering in school, but I didn't have any actual experience yet. So I was like, you know, I'm actually just going to take a break, I guess, and do uh, English teaching for a year. So mm. that was the original plan. Yep. So I moved to Japan, be an English teacher, just do a one, one year stint basically, and then go back to the US was the original plan. Did you visit first or did you just like bounce over there? <laughs> I did actually. I had a homestay for a month during high school, just as this, you know, there was this program with those like classes that I was taking. So I had been there for a month and really enjoyed that. And I felt like I wanted to do it for real and actually live there kind of as an adult. So yeah, got on a plane uh, right after I graduated from school and what, for what was supposed to be a one year thing. And now it's been almost 10 years uh, since then. It is such a cool country to visit. I always say that Japan is like, mm. it's my favorite country that I've never been to. I don't even have plans to go to Japan. <laughs> uh, it's not even on my calendar, but I know someday I will go and I know that I'll love it because it's such a cool, almost like alien country, just so different and distinct, the culture and so many cool things come out of Japan. Uh, you live there. What's something that uh, you know, as someone who lives there and has lived there for quite some time, that I wouldn't know as like a first time tourist? Or what's something that like, you know, any tourist might benefit from knowing uh, that you appreciate about Japan? Well, right now there are actually uh, a lot of tourists coming since the borders finally opened up. They were closed for like almost three years. And the Japanese yen right now is actually at a historic low, which is terrible for me since I earn yen. But <laughs> if you're earning dollars right now, it's amazing. So it's kind of a perfect storm right now if you did actually want to come visit Japan. And yeah, I mean, I have some kind of standard advice that I give people who are looking to come. One would be make sure you get a train card, like a Suica or a Pasmo. Don't mess around with tickets. You know, don't tip. That is one that Americans sometimes have trouble with. Like, mm. it's not a thing here. Just don't do it. You know, be quiet when you're on the trains. You know, there's like this weird <laughs> culture where like people don't really <laughs> talk on trains. And there's always, you know, whenever I come here with like a foreign uh, you know, friend or whatever, they will be like that that foreigner kind of on the train talking super loud. So I try to tell them not to do that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of just random stuff like that, just like tips that I have. Like if you're going to a long distance, it's usually better to take the train. Like I don't really recommend uh, getting a car and trying to drive around the whole country. Uh, it tends to be a bit slower and you don't really save much money anyway. Parking is a big pain. The irony here is I think I actually will make use of those tips because I would like to visit mm -hmm. Japan. And I'm shocked, shocked that Cortland won't because Cortland's obsessed no, with I anime. Will. Cortland I will. has yeah, talked about that? how he thinks that like, I just don't Japanese have a plan is like, the most beautiful language. <laughs> Japanese like, is the most beautiful language. Like, have, you ever, right. have you ever heard someone's like watch an anime and then turn off the subtitles and just listen? It's to like the ASMR. I love it's it. It's so good. Wow. And yeah, I was gonna say because I know you're into anime and everything. So I was hoping I love maybe you probably watched hundred animes. But... The thing is, I can watch wow. animes without going to Japan. <laughs> so I've, it's very easy to just not go. Corlin's going to visit in VR and tell me that his <laughs> VR experience is better than my, my real experience. But, um, but anyway, Eric, I'm curious about like you went there and you were teaching English, but I did a little bit of research and saw like eventually you started looking for a software engineering job. What was your experience with that? Yeah. So I just did the English teaching for one year. I pretty much time boxed myself on that, said I'm going to do it. But then at the end of that, I'm either going to have to go home or 
maybe move to Tokyo and find a software development job. Because I just, you know, my engineering degree that I had kind of killed myself to get was getting stale. I had not gotten any experience yet. Um, so I was like, you know, I'll give it a shot. I'll go to Tokyo, see if I can find something. And um, so, yeah, I just had, I think, like $2,000 in my bank account, something like that. And I got on a train, basically. I was in this small town before in Toyama Prefecture, and I just moved to Tokyo. Mm. And got this, like, the cheapest possible apartment I could find. It was, like, me and two other guys in this room. And uh, that was, like, 500 bucks a month. So I was like, all right, I have at least a couple months before I literally run out of money. And I just went all in on literally searching for jobs. And uh, it was a struggle, especially back then. I think the industry has improved a lot now, so it's a little bit easier. But I had no experience, no visa. So a company was going to have to sponsor me. No money, like I said. So I had kind of a, basically a couple months to make this happen. And uh, I got rejected probably by like 99% of the places that I applied. So that was a struggle that was kind of depressing. But eventually, I, you know, I finally found this small Japanese startup. It was about 40 people. And they you know, were willing to basically hire me as a Ruby developer. So that wasn't even my plan. I was trying to be like a mobile dev at that time. I had built some like random Android apps and stuff. But I applied. They're like, hey, we, we need a back-end person. I was like, yeah, all right, sure. I'll write some Ruby code. And so I got my first uh, programming job that way. But yeah, it was a struggle. And honestly, probably one of the most stressful periods uh, yeah. of my life. I can imagine. So were you fluent yeah. in Japanese by that, by that point? And are you fluent now? I am definitely fluent now. At that point, I was already good enough to be doing interviews and stuff in Japanese. So since I was really focused more on like the Japanese, like small startup companies, they were all in, ja uh, in Japanese. So even that, that job, first job that I got, I was working 100% in Japanese, which is kind of what I wanted at that point because I really wanted to you know, work on the language a bit more. I thought if I could get that programming experience while also learning the language, I'd kind of be able to kill two birds with one stone, you know? I can imagine, like, I think the experience of being scared, you know, like, I'm going to run out of money. Because I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I moved to San Francisco right out of college, and I, mm -hmm. I had, like, no money. And I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just build a successful startup because I was 22 <laughs> and an idiot. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I can do it in three months. It'll be fine. Uh, but I can't imagine having that experience, but then having it in a different country where I'm, like, new to the language and there's also, like, not that many other, you know, foreigners in the country, so I'm, like, pretty much alone, like... What was your plan? You know, if you didn't, you got rejected by 99% of companies, like what was your plan if the startup didn't hire you? The plan was just to hopefully save enough for a return ticket home and then go back to my parents' <laughs> house. Wow. And then, yeah. So I knew I wouldn't literally die. I wouldn't, you know, on the streets of Tokyo because worst possible case, like I would just go back. And at least for like, you know, some period of time, you know, with my parents. But it was like coming down to the wire though, because yeah. like I said, I had this visa that was about to run out. And I had to get a new, new visa from the new company and everything. And I just remember I was trying to build these side projects. And like at night, I would literally be like in mm. McDonald's, you know, drinking these 100 yen, like $1 coffees for like hours, just trying <laughs> to build these crappy like Rails apps and stuff. So I'd have something to show, like some code to show the companies and having mm. some code on my GitHub and everything. So I didn't know if it was going to work or not. And, you know, I was getting to really like, you know, I had met some people in Tokyo and everything. I wanted to stay there, but I knew I had to find a job. So it really just came through at the last second. Like when I was honestly starting to think about giving up, I had this, like I had two or three interviews left and one of them kind of panned out. So it was really just luck. Yeah. What is, what is Japan's yeah. tech industry like, right? So Cortland and I obviously mm -hmm. were in San Francisco when we were looking for jobs in our, in our mid twenties. And it's like, you know, there's the Googles and the Facebooks and, and all those, all those things. But mm -hmm. in 2013, 2014, what was, what was that like for you? 
I feel like in the US, developers are super respected. They have a lot of power, right? Um, just because the demand is so ridiculously high. And Japan is a little bit behind, I would say, on the software, especially like kind of internet tech side of things, where there's not going to be this guarantee really, where if you just choose a company and start working as like a you know, uh, software developer, that it's going to be a particularly good work environment. In fact, the average case is actually probably not very good, I would say. Um, it's more of like these older school Japanese companies that don't really respect software as much. Um, they have this history of like kind of outsourcing um, and really being more focused on hardware. Japan's really strong when it comes to hardware and manufacturing yeah. these things, but they haven't really embraced software nearly as much. So it's just a matter of being a lot more careful and trying to find that uh, kind of pocket of companies because there is like another kind of segment of the market where it is really like international companies and the more modern Japanese startups. So if you just focus on that, you can actually have a pretty good uh, you know, situation here. So that's what I tried to do. And you know, I was researching, kind of building out this list for myself. I had just this Trello list of companies. And when I found a good one or met someone at a meetup that you know, was another foreigner and they said, oh, this place is good to work at, I would kind of keep track of that for my own, my own job search. Yeah, there's a line on your website actually where you say that you started Japan Dev in part to improve the image of Japan's tech industry around the world. And I think I had the same image that you're describing, that it's like a very conservative place that, you know, like you said, on one hand, like Japan is a highly technically advanced society. They're leaders in electronics and manufacturing, uh, entertainment, anime, as we've said. But I can't even think of a single Japanese tech startup. Like, I guess they have SoftBank, which is invested in some other like tech startups. But besides that, there's like, there are no Japanese startup mobile apps that I use or websites that I go to. It's just... It's just not um, a leader in that space. Why do you think exactly. that is? Do you think it, it is the culture? Like, why don't you think they respect software there? And how are you sort of like, hoping to change that? It's a really good question. I think that back in like the 70s and 80s, Japan had this period of like miraculous economic growth, right? Where they had companies like Sony and you know, Toyota basically driving all this incredible amount of um, growth where they basically rocketed to the top of the GDP rankings in the world, where they're like the second biggest uh, economy in the world. And that was thanks to a lot of this like manufacturing, uh, electronics, this hardware. Um, so I kind of think that it is a remnant of that because, you know, you can point to that and say, wow, like, look at this amazing result we had with these physical goods. We created all these processes and things to make them more efficient and, you know, build them faster and better than everyone else. And it was amazing for us. And people, I think, still kind of remember that bubble era uh, of like the 80s and 90s. And I kind of feel like that has remained very strong because those are still kind of the same main tech companies that people talk about today is like Sony and Toshiba and these, these types of companies. And there's just been a lot more focus on that side of the market, unfortunately. And then I would say really in the past decade or so, finally, there has been a lot of growth on the uh, startup side, and you may not have heard of any of the kind of new uh, wave of startups that have come out, but they are getting bigger and bigger, you know, more and more profitable. Like there's a company called Mercari, for example. Uh, they're actually reasonably well-known in the U.S. as well. I worked for them for a few years, and, you know, they had like a seven or eight billion dollar, I think, um, like IPO. They were a unicorn. So I think there's like 10 or so unicorns now. Maybe even like six, seven years ago, there were literally none. So... It is growing. You know, I'm hoping that we'll start to see more and more of those companies get bigger and bigger and have maybe like a Google or like a Facebook level company come out at some point. 
but it has not happened yet. So you were working at Mercari. Uh, it seemed like it was kind of a nail biter situation where, you know, you really, really needed to get that job. And I'm sure it was great to get the job. But then what is it five or so years later now? And, you know, you just posted an $83,000 a month milestone with your with your new company. What happened, right? Like, were you were you you said you were building some side projects to find that job? Did you know at that point in time that you wanted to eventually like try to build your own thing? How did your wife come into this too? Like, is this someone that you met in America? Is this someone that you met in the States? And like, what was this conversation like where you're like, hey, we should start a tech, a tech startup in this extremely yeah. conservative <laughs> tech industry where like, you know, risk taking isn't exactly rewarded in Japan or looked, looked upon very favorably. So I'm curious about that part of the story too. First of all, I did work at Mercari. That was the last company that I worked at before I quit my job to go full time though. So there were a few job changes that happened between mm. uh, the company that I mentioned, that kind of tiny Japanese startup and, you know, each time I switched jobs, I would learn a little bit more about kind of tricks for finding the best jobs here, um, you know, interviewing, all that kind of stuff, and was trying to get bigger, kind of more globally minded companies each time. Um, so I took, you know, a few of those kind of steps until I reached Mercari, which was, uh, you know, the last company I worked out. And somewhere in there, I did meet my wife. Actually, we met pretty soon after I moved to Tokyo and got that first tech job. And mm. yeah, she was one of my kind of first friends here in Tokyo, I guess, uh, grew into a little bit more than that and ultimately got married. It's, it's not like we had this plan to start a, a startup together or anything like that. It was more just, I was getting more and more interested in that. And, you know, it was really more that she agreed to kind of support my vision that I had for basically a job board that was the, the service that I wish had existed, you know, because I, like, like I said, I really struggled when it, when it came to right. finding that first tech job and even subsequently. And I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if we had a job board that was focused on the needs of people like me, where you could go and see, does this company sponsor visas? Are they, uh, you know, do they have a kind of international environment, things like that? And uh, my wife kind of really shared my enthusiasm for that idea. She thought it was a great, great business idea and basically agreed to help out with me. There's a lot of people, I think, who are working jobs who want to transition to become an indie hacker. I think it's like a tough path to follow. Like financially, how do you support yourself? And socially, you know, it's like not necessarily the most acceptable thing. It's a big risk. And I think a lot of people just get inspired sufficiently that they want to mm -hmm. do it. For you, like, what, where was that inspiration coming from? Was it, was it, you know, you were just generally inspired to start a startup and do your own thing? Or was it specifically related to you just want to solve this problem to help people find jobs in Japan? I think it was more that I was always kind of building side projects and n never actually you know, promoted them or made any money from them or anything. But I always had some kind of like side coding project that I was building. And I guess just in the back of my mind, I knew that one day I would like to try being an entrepreneur. And as I was going through my career here in Japan, changing jobs every couple of years and like I said, learning more about the industry and that kind of thing, I guess I kind of zeroed in on this, this one idea. And there were kind of a few false starts before I ended up actually building it for real. Like I think the first version of the site that I ever actually built was back in like 2017 or so. And, you know, that was basically just, like I said, I had this Trello board literally that I was maintaining of good companies that I thought, you know, were basically good places to work for people like me. And I essentially took that and turned it into a website and there weren't even any jobs actually. The MVP that I originally built was just a list of companies. So that, you know, that initial version, I did the typical developer thing, didn't show it to anyone, kind of just built it, wrote yep. some, just wanted to write the code, whatever, you know, and then stopped, dropped it, 
And then, yeah, I actually didn't go back to it until about two years later. I don't know why. I think I was just kind of looking at my life. At that point, I had actually switched from being a developer to a like an engineering manager. And just thinking about my career and like whether I wanted to kind of continue on that path or try something else, I realized that, yeah, I kind of want to do something else. And I kind of came back to that idea and built it for real, uh, rebuilt that site. And again, it was still just like this job, uh, not even a job board, it was like this glass door kind of like review site at first, actually. So that was a mistake. I didn't, I, I built what I thought other people would want, but really I was the only one who wanted it. So that is one thing that I would tell people who are interested in, try, in trying to build a business. Yes, scratch your own itch. That's great. Do try to make sure that other people have that itch too, <laughs> because I don't know, for whatever reason, I was really into, you know, companies and learning about them. And I, I had this like list of like 50 plus like companies and all this right. data about them and this stuff. And other people don't do that. I, I realized <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reason, I was kind of going a lot deeper than that, uh, than a lot of people would and mm. built it. And I actually showed it to some people. I tweeted it out and it got some initial buzz uh, originally and some people were like, oh, that's really cool. But where's the apply button? Basically, it was what it, what it was. Like, I want actual jobs. Like, I don't want to, like, go digging through all this information about these companies. And so I pivoted toward being a job board. I love that you're in this sort of career space, hiring space, job board space, because there's just a lot of money there. And it's a lot of, there's a lot of important decisions being made there that change people's lives, that change the nature of companies. And so, like, if you have something that doesn't quite work, like you had this idea that you thought would work, but it didn't quite work it's easier to pivot into something that will work because you're in like a really good space. It's like one of the things I tell indie hackers the most is like look for a place or a space where people care a lot and where people spend a lot of money. I think every indie hacker wants to build a product where people care so much that they're going to use their product and they're going to tell their friends about it. Every indie hacker wants to build a business that people care about so much that they're going to pay money for it. And I think like the shortcut is just like where is money changing hands? Right. And like the job sort of career industry is like obviously where a lot of money is changing hands because it's like companies are hiring people and paying their salaries. Like it's hard to even imagine an area of the economy where there's like more money being spent. And on the flip side, you have people like you who are like, you know, out there looking for jobs and like they're stressed about it. It's emotional. It's important. It's going to like change where they live and how they live. And so like they care a ton about that. And so I think it's like such a great place to build a business because like even if you mess up, you know that like you're only like one or two steps away from like doing something that has real value to people. And that was one thing I thought about a lot was like kind of trying to think about the flow of money uh, within the industry and you know how actually in Japan it's a little bit unique and that it's mostly from recruiting firms more so than job boards. And that's one of the reasons that I decided to do the kind of unique per hire model as well is to be a little bit closer to that. But you know, if you just look at the companies, and, you know, a lot of that money is flowing to these recruiting firms, essentially. And when you look at how much they charge, it's kind of eye-opening, actually, because usually it's a percentage of a person's starting salary. And in Japan, it's actually even higher than it would be in, like, the U.S., places like that. It's, like, 30 to 35%. Whoa. So that, a lot. And that coupled with the fact that, I, yeah. So my idea also was to be curated and focus on kind of the top of the market as well. So when you kind of couple those two things, it was like, I'm only, you know, really working with these good companies that pay a lot of money and they're primed to uh, be paying like 30%, 35% of people's salaries. So to me, that seemed like a huge opportunity. It's like, even if I am, you know, less than that, I can still charge a lot per, you know, per hire and um, build a good business that way. So as far as pivots go, this is an interesting one, right? Because you, you pivoted from basically a, like a company, like a, a company discovery platform to this job board. 
And secretly, what that means is that you, you pivoted towards a two-sided marketplace, right? Which is like notoriously difficult. You have the, uh, the cold start problem, right? This chicken and egg problem. So even if you were better addressing the actual demand and the opportunities here, now you've got this problem of like cold starting. So what was that like? You know, did, did it take a long time or did you figure out any secrets? So you're always going to run into this. And one thing I tell people is if you do want to build a job board, then have a plan for the cold start uh, problem, right? Because it's, it's this catch 22 where to get applicants, you need companies posting jobs, but to get companies posting jobs, you need applicants. So as I mentioned earlier, I did have this initial version of the site where it was basically just this Glassdoor site where people go on and see, okay, here's 50 good companies or whatever, you know, vetted companies that I was kind of backing. And that got enough buzz, I think, where when I started to reach out to these companies, they at least had seen the site once. Mm. Um, so that was actually really nice. But I do think actually the main hack that I used though was I was still working at the time. I was a software developer myself and I went to my own company. And that is really powerful actually, because it was my target customer. And I already obviously had the network of people there who I knew. So I was able to just break into HR very easily and have kind of a frank discussion with them, like what kind of features would you need? And obviously it's just a little bit easier of like a sales pitch and everything when you know the people. So that was my first customer actually was the company Mercari that I was working for. Then there's still the question of like, what about company number two, number three? And I do think that initial bump in traffic that I had helped uh, because I think HR people especially had at least seen the site once or twice. They kind of knew the name. Um, so it wasn't a completely kind of cold introduction then when I was trying to email them or whatever. The second person I actually found on Reddit, uh, they mentioned that they were like an HR person at one of these companies. It was actually Indeed, uh, which is a big presence here in Japan. So I DM'd them on Reddit and was able to get an interview with uh, like their HR people that way. And it was really nice to be doing the model that I am doing because I'm a developer, not a salesperson. Right. And mm. it made the pitch so much easier because it was basically a no brainer where I could walk in and be like, Hey, I'm going to post your jobs on this site. Um, you're going to get a bunch of traffic from me. Uh, I'm going to build out a company profile page as well, all in English, like native level. Like I'm, I've worked at these you know, big companies here. I know what we want. It's, I'm literally you know, the, the target customer for it. So I'm going to build this out for you for free. No upfront cost whatsoever. I'm going to like make you look good, you know, Right. and you're not going to pay me unless someone actually joins. And even if that happens, it's still going to be less than you're currently paying these recruiters. Right. So that was the only way I was really able to get them to agree was like to make the pitch such a no brainer, <laughs> but they just couldn't really come up with reasons to say no. Um, so that was a big part of it. And that's how I got my second company is I just went and talked to them and I had this kind of warm uh, intro from someone literally on, on Reddit. And once I had those two companies, I think the third one was a lot easier. And then from there, after I had like four or five, and they were pretty well-known companies, then it just mm. got a lot easier. Ultimately, I also got some testimonials, which took it kind of to the next level, to the point mm. where like it's it's not even difficult now. Um, I get most of my new companies now from like inbound. Um, I don't even really go out and like search out companies anymore. Maybe occasionally, if I if I hear about a new company, it's like really cool. But uh, now that that part that side is not a problem at all. The other side of the applicants, yeah. That was the problem. <laughs> right, right. So that took kind of, yeah. So I had some companies now at this point and some jobs actually on the platform. So if someone were to go on the site, we had that apply button, you could actually get value as a customer. But that process of actually gathering more and more applicants took mm. way longer. And mm. that was an absolute, like a, a real struggle for us. And actually, I think from the time when I got our first 
signed contract with the company and the first job posted to the time that we actually got the first payment was about 12 months. So basically a straight wow. year of 12 months. Yes, exactly. And the fact that I had contracts meant that I was already, you know, I, I, it was a business and I had to, uh, you know, listen to the demands of these companies, right? Because they're, well, in theory, they had a contract to pay me if, as long as they hired someone, right? And so the amount of work was increasing and I was still working as a, you know, an engineering manager, managing a team basically at uh, one of these companies. So I would basically work a full day. I'd wake up, have 9 a.m. meetings and all that kind of stuff, do my full day as a manager. And then right. I would like finish, be like, oh, okay, it's over. And then my wife would be like, all right, ready? <laughs> like, ready to Let's start like, work day number two at Japan Dev? <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, that's insane. And so, yeah, literally we did that for 12 months. Uh, I love that there, there could be that 12 month lag, right? Like you have this marketplace, it's the cold mm -hmm. start problem, like the chicken and the egg, like how do you get both parts? But like, if you do the supply side first and you have this awesome pitch to them, that's like, they can't really say no to, they don't care how long it takes you. Like at some point you're finding them customers and that gives you the time to kind of do one side and then move to the other side. At least they didn't churn, but yeah. Yeah. And then I also love that you started with like sales. I think a lot of indie hackers have the opposite sort of mindset and intuition. They think, oh, I'm a software engineer. The thing I'm the worst at in the world is calling anyone or messaging anyone and doing sales. Like that's impossible. And I certainly can't sell to like a really big company. Like what I need to do is find lots of individuals to sell to you and I'll do marketing. Like it turns out like that is actually the hard part. <laughs> Getting thousands of people to your website, super duper hard, takes years for a lot of people. Um, DMing a few companies, sending some cold emails, having a few phone calls, almost anyone can do with really no experience. And it's kind of shocking. Like, I don't want to say that it's easy, but like I've had experiences when I was selling ads for indie hackers where I would call up companies with no sales experience. And then like an hour later, I would have made $5,000 because like, yeah, we'll buy an ad on your podcast. And I've had friends, my friend Lynn, who started Key Values. It's kind of similar to your first idea where it's kind of a job board, but based on, you know, more glass door vibe. Uh, she did the same thing, same process as you, called up a bunch of companies. The first few were like, oh, okay, I guess we don't have anything to lose. And then after she had five or 10, it's super easy because she's all these brand names and everyone's like, our competitors are doing it. Like, sure, we'll do it too. And so I think starting with that sales approach is so much better for indie hackers than, than starting with trying to find thousands of users. But eventually you had to do that. At some point you have to find yep. the applicants. And that's when it actually becomes a business. Until then yeah. it's not, you know what I mean? People, you might think it is because you have so, so much code written or whatever it is, but nope, it's not a business until you have a customer. But first of all, I love that episode with Lynn from uh, Key Values. That was actually one of the companies that we definitely looked at when we were first kind of deciding how to build the site and everything. And I think I just done it wrong enough times. Like I mentioned that I've always kind of been building stuff on the side and doing, doing the usual mistake of the software developer where I am building it, showing it to no one. It just dies because I've, of course I lose motivation. It's not earning any money. No one's right. giving me feedback on it. And then I, I did that probably five, six, seven times. And this time I was like, all right, you know, I, I listened to things like indie hackers, you know, and I think I realized finally, like, okay, in order to actually do this, then we need to go out and talk to some people. It was still incredibly scary. I still did a horrible job at first. Like when I go back mm. and look at the like cold LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn messages and stuff that I was sending, I cringe so hard because they're like <laughs> absurdly long. There's no way anyone would ever actually read these. They're so long, you know, talking all about like the service, not talking about the customer at all. They're not benefit driven. <laughs> it's just like, we're building this really cool thing. Like, here's why it's like so awesome, you know? And um, like, no, like multiple CTAs, you know, it's <laughs> just terrible. I broke every, every possible sales rule and it's amazing that anyone even responded. I love that though, because you could break all those rules and it works. 
Like you did it, you did it all wrong and it still worked, which is so encouraging to other people who are just getting started. I feel like your business matches up really closely to one of my favorite strategies for starting a business, which I've talked about a couple times. Um, it's a strategy that I use for indie hackers, which got acquired by Stripe. It's a strategy that Peter Levels used for Nomad List. Uh, and he's making millions of dollars a year in revenue from that and it's spinoff products. Uh, same strategy that Lentai used in, in Key Values, um, which I think she makes like around 400 grand a year with Key Values and it's just her, no employees. Uh, and I think if you go through this process, you have a pretty good chance of building a profitable business. So I want like, to share it with you and you tell me what you think uh, and whether it applies to you. It's kind of a three-step process. So the first step is you notice something in your life that's important to you and where you're doing a lot of research. So in my case, I wanted to start a bootstrap company. It was important to me. I started doing a ton of research to find other people who had done this so I could learn as much as I could. Um, in your case, like you wanted a job in Japan, so you're doing all this research, looking at all these different companies, you're applying, you're getting really familiar because it's just a lot to take in. Or in Peter Levels' case, he was a digital nomad. And he was doing a ton of research about places to go and live and be a nomad. And he wanted to know how safe it was and how, what the cost of living was and how fast the internet was. And that just required like a ton of different research all over the web. So that's step one. Step two is you got to take all your research and you got to make it presentable. And that means, like, number one, other people have to care about this research. It can't just be you. But then step, you know, two involves you need to put it on a website somewhere, you know, in a list or a grid format. I think the grid's pretty, for, like, you know, pretty popular. Indie Hackers and its early days was just a grid of interviews. Nomad List is a grid of cities. Japan Dev is sort of a grid of just jobs. Uh, and what's important really isn't the grid. What's important is that you know your target audience and what they want so that your research, when you put it online, is formatted in a way that gives it to them. And then you have step three, which I think is the hard part, which is what we're about to talk about, which is you got to distribute it. It's got to be discoverable. So it's not a, a good enough for you just to like have this all on the web, but you need to somehow get it out there in front of people who are doing the research that you were trying to do. But now when they're doing that research, they'll stumble across your thing, hopefully. And so with indie hackers, like I knew that like, hey, everyone who wants to do this is looking on Hacker News, so I'll post it there. Um, with Nomad List, I think Peter Levels is in all these different like basically Twitter threads where he was posting nomad lists and like these different articles or targeted digital nomads. And so people who are doing research would find his website. And with you, like you mentioned SEO, right? If I'm trying to find a job in Japan and I'm, you know, a foreigner, what do I do? Like I do I do research by going to Google and searching for it, just like I did earlier. Uh, and like, that's where you need to be for people to find you. So like, I do want to dive into that. Like, how do you execute this third, third step of the process? Like, how did you get yourself found by Google? Well, first of all, I think that framework is totally on point. Like that's exactly what I did. And like you said, the third step was definitely the hardest for me since I had never really done any marketing. And unfortunately it was also the slowest because I was relying, I would say the main distribution channel that we ended up using was SEO, especially Google. Um, because like you said, that is pretty much where the traffic comes from uh, for this kind of niche that I am uh, focused on. So. You know, a big part of that was just writing blog content, basically related topics to getting jobs. I mean, because the job board itself, those pages will target keywords like, you know, if you search like Python jobs in Japan or PHP jobs in Japan, all those, those kind of, I created pages, separate pages basically to cover all of those for all of the different uh, you know, programming languages and that kind of thing. And then the next step was um, just basically writing content for our blog, which answered questions that people like me would have. So, you know, one of the most popular ones I had early on was uh, the salary guide that I wrote. And it was like focused really on these like more international companies. And, you know, here's what you can actually earn as a software developer, you know, based on uh, the level that, you know, your, your seniority and all that kind of thing. Uh, and another one was just an overall guide that I had for like moving to Japan as a software developer. So 
I was writing, you know, lots of blog posts and also just the page structure matters a lot as well. Making sure you have kind of separate pages, like I said, rather than just like one big page that is going to be only hiring, you know, only really targeting one or two keywords. So that was something that I learned. Peter Levels, who you mentioned, is another good example of this with Nomadless. He has like tens of thousands of pages, I'm pretty sure, because like each filter is its own page. And I read this article about that and I'm like, oh, wow, I see. So you got to split you know, the pages up. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I did, like posting on the Google Jobs, yeah, like the Google Jobs network or whatever, there's this feature where it'll show the jobs in the search engine result. So adding the markup to enable that gave me a pretty good boost actually in traffic. I guess those are probably the main things that I was doing for SEO, but the problem is that it is slow, <laughs> it compounds and you change something and it, you see the fruits of that literally three to like six months later. So that is why I had this really long lag time. And during that time, I was definitely improving the, you know, the, the UX and everything as well to just make it super easy to find the, you know, the apply button. And the other thing I guess was the email list. I didn't know this at first, we know when I first put the site, but for job boards, I would say it's a big thing right now. You really need to be collecting emails from the start. And, you know, I got better and better kind of sending those emails and figured out how to write a compelling email to you know, those people when I would post new jobs. Um, so I was doing that myself, kind of learned that copywriting as well. And those were kind of the two biggest kind of distribution channels that we had, of course, posting on social media as well especially Twitter and LinkedIn, I would say. LinkedIn actually worked quite well. After you know, a year, basically, it started to pay off. Um, and then from there, things got a lot easier. What was that journey like emotionally? Because I think a lot of indie hackers are in this state where they're trying to make their thing work. They built the website, they built the product, they're trying to get customers, it's not working, and they get discouraged and quit. You know, Most people will quit after a month or two of writing articles and it, it's not generating a lot of traffic. Most people definitely quit after like four months or six months or eight months or 11 months. So like you made it like a year. Like what, what kept you going and how do you keep going in that situation? One thing that actually helped was COVID because I didn't have to commute to the office anymore. And I kind of just needed something to do, to be honest, where, I mean, at least here in Japan, like things were pretty locked down for like kind of that year that I was struggling. So it was kind of nice to have it. That doesn't mean it wasn't a struggle um, because it, it was definitely ex exasperating to see like the, the numbers go up and more and more people apply. You know, I had more and more kind of high quality jobs and yet we still just weren't earning any actual money. And if it weren't for, you know, being at home and not going out anyway, um, just kind of just being stuck there regardless, I probably would end up quitting. But yeah, we were able to keep going just long enough to finally get our first first actual payment from a company and then from there we kind of have that as extra motivation we're like okay it works we got to scale it obviously we got to keep doing what we're doing you know we have work to do yet but this is viable there's these success stories of job boards but the vast majority of people that have started job boards have failed um so what do you think you know that they don't know you know what are what are people who are starting job boards doing doing wrong so there are so many job boards now and i've actually heard people say that like they're kind of played out at this point. They don't recommend creating job boards. And I actually think there's still a lot of potential personally, but I do think you definitely need to niche down. I don't think you should create another like remote job board at this point. I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, so definitely choose a niche. And you know, from there, I do feel like there is still this playbook that has worked relatively well for me where you do have the cold start problem, as you mentioned, so having a way to get past that and you know a way that a lot of people do it is to just crawl jobs so that they already have the supply and then that attracts users and if that is like focused and it's like curated 
I still think there's a ton of value in just taking the like sea of jobs that exist and saying, okay, I went through and I did the research for you and I found you know these good ones or these ones that fulfill this criteria so that you don't have to basically. And here they are. So if you do that combined with like some crawling to just get the jobs, because normally companies don't necessarily mind when you do that. They have these applicant tracking systems that have APIs. In fact, that you can kind of just crawl that data from pretty easily. That's what most people are doing these days. Um, so as long as you do that and then really focus on SEO, make it really optimized, like I said, separate pages for all the different keywords and stuff, um, post it on Google jobs, all, basically all those things that I did, I think that that will still work. And then, yeah, you just really need to go hard on the marketing side of things, make sure you're sharing it. So yeah, I'm actually still very bullish on job boards in general. In fact, I just started a new job board because I was kind of getting a little bit lonely over here in Japan, just having this kind of Japan specific product. And yeah. uh, I wanted to try building something more for the international market. So I actually am bootstrapping this new job board now. It's a work in progress, but it's called rocketchips.io. So it's uh, basically a job board for mid-stage com uh, companies in this kind of growth period between small startup and big established company. But the idea basically being that uh, these are the companies that are kind of growing the fastest. They have the best risk reward because they have kind of the best of both worlds. Um, yeah. Similar to breakout list, if you've seen that, yeah. The breakout list or like on uh, this this other podcast, Micros Million, they talked about this this concept of yeah. like Sarah's list. I don't know if you, yeah, if you heard that, you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. So I built like, a job <laughs> board for that. And my idea now is basically to take my playbook from Japan Dev, just apply all that stuff uh, and right. see how that goes uh, for like US slash international market. I love that, uh, the idea of Sarah's list kind of underexplored like way to make money in life essentially it's like you, if you if you go online and you google like oh what what job should i get you know you're going to get like you should be an engineer or you should be a doctor or what about a lawyer or a plumber you just get like a, like the most generic thing um, but if you ask around on twitter you ask people in the know you ask like people who are in the industry they'll tell you about these like unique paths that can make you a lot of money like oh you could be an indie hacker or you could work part-time jobs save up your money then invest in real estate like or you could like go to the tech industry and look for these rocket ship companies that are undervalued at the time. And if you pick well, get a lot of stock and like become a millionaire just by working a normal job, right? Which is what Sarah uh, Sampar's wife did. So that's a, such a cool job board idea. I'm curious about the business model. So like you, you mentioned earlier, your business model is that you essentially only charge companies when they actually make a placement, similar to a recruiter. Um, but you're not a recruiter. So you're not like handholding the applicants through the process. No. So it, the product is a job board and it's monetized kind of like a recruiting firm. How do you ensure companies pay? Because I imagine like, you know, that year long where you're like, okay, people are coming to a website. I'm trying to get, you know, applicants, like, but I'm not making any money. Like maybe the companies are hiring people and just not telling right. you because there's really doesn't seem to be a way to enforce that. And yet, like, here you are, like, clearly they are telling you and paying you. How does that, how does that work? That is a very good question. And as time went on, I basically created more and more ways to prevent that and keep companies honest. So the first way that I do it is in the contract that I make them sign, there is a late fee and it increases the longer that they go without paying. That's, that's kind of the first line of defense. The next thing is that um, I keep track of all the applicants. So we have two ways of applying. You can either go through email, in which case I have your resume and your email and everything, all that kind of stuff. So I know exactly who you are, or they can, link directly to their like ATS, uh, their applicant tracking system that they have. And if I use that way, then I basically show a modal and I force everyone. It's like a fairly strict modal where they all have to put in like some data, like email name and a, a link. Like usually it's like a GitHub or a LinkedIn uh, URL. So that is the ne kind of next way. I, I kind of have that data at the very least. So then I can look at that and say, okay, it's, this company has 
had all these applicants and they haven't hired anyone yet. That's kind of weird. So I can use that as a heuristic. And I do have one other kind of thing that I do, which is I have this, um, actually this gift card now that I give away. So I have this form actually on the site that you'll notice there's a button that says like, um, you know, uh, joined a company through Japan Dev or whatever, they found a job. So on there you can click and it, you can basically tell me about a job that you found. And then I send you a, like a 3000 yen Amazon gift card. So just as another incentive. And also to kind of show companies and be like, hey, I'm asking them to, to send this. So yeah, if I have all that data, so I can also just go back to, like I said, if, if a company is kind of looking a little suspicious and I can kind of do some crawling or at least look at people's LinkedIn's, talk to some people, that kind of thing as well. In practice, I actually think that the community is so small that companies don't really want to burn bridges. And since, like I said, they are used to paying these high fees for recruiters, it's not that expensive uh, to begin with. Like they're already getting a pretty decent deal. So I don't think it's really worth burning that relationship with us um, over that and you know not being able to use the service anymore. So I think that keeps them relatively honest. And if not, then I have a few other kind of tactics that I use. That's awesome. Well, Eric, this has been really cool. You, you mentioned you, I think two months ago, you were at 83K and then you kind of had a, a down month. So I'm, I'm hoping for a 100K month for next month. Me but too. Meanwhile, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, obviously you've had a lot of, you've had a lot of experience. You've learned a ton, but a lot of our listeners are new. So what's your advice for people who are just starting out? Yeah, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think if I could concentrate my advice into one thing, it would be find a customer because when you don't have a customer, you don't have a business, right? And before that point, there are like an infinite number of things that you could do, all these things that you could optimize and you could write code. I made this mistake myself. I literally was building this Kubernetes cluster for six months, all this, all these APIs and stuff for a, ultimately like, like a, a, a product that no one really wanted. And it's so easy to just do that and be in their kind of comfort zone. You know, I was a programmer, so I just wanted to write code. But then if you just say, okay, forget that, close the laptop, you know, whatever, commit your code, quit trying to mess with the design or whatever, it's fine. You don't need a logo. Just literally get on the phone, talk to some people and just get a customer. Because from that point on, once you have that, then everything, all that kind of like uncertainty, all the other unimportant things kind of fall away. And you can just focus on what matters, which is that customer, getting the next customer and, you know, scaling from there. And you'll see like what actually matters in a business, right? And it, go, it goes from being a project to really like a, an actual business. And uh, so that is the one thing that I would just tell people to do is like, not next week, not next month, today, right now, literally just go get a customer right now. And I think that's the most beneficial thing you can possibly do. Go get a customer right now. Eric Turner, thanks a ton for coming <laughs> on the show. Uh, can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about you and about your new job board and also about Japan Dev? Yeah. So my main project is japandev.com. Yeah, there's a hyphen, but even if you forget, it, it's okay. I have both. Uh, and then rocketships.io is the other one if you are looking for a job. Right now, kind of a state between like a prototype and actually useful, but there are already some jobs and stuff. So if you want to see a list of companies where uh, I think, you know, there's a better kind of risk reward profile. Yeah, check that out. Otherwise, just hit me up on Twitter. Uh, it's underscore ETDev. Uh, ETDev was taken. That's where I, that's what I am on everything else. I get help and everything. But yeah, twitter.com slash underscore ETDev. And also if you're in Tokyo, I know a lot of people are coming right now because the borders are opening up and everything. Hit me up. 
because I'm always looking to meet other uh, indie hackers. 100 yen was a dollar when you were in McDonald's. You just checked 100 yen, 68 cents. I'm going to come and just buy it. Isn't that insane? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's such a good deal right now, seriously. So. Yeah. Well, I'll see you out there. Yeah. Thanks so much, Eric, for coming on. Thanks, right. man.